0: Hello, and welcome to the Sitcom Club. Joining myself, Mooncat, this week is Boggan Strovia. Hello there. How are you doing? I'm okay, how are you? I'm no bad, I'm no bad. I'm in the sweltering June heat of Glasgow. How are things down there on the south coast?
1: It's very hot at the moment. Well, it certainly was today.
0: And what have you been up to since we last spoke? Last time we, you and I were chatting sitcoms was on uh, Men Behaving Badly a few weeks ago.
1: Yes, yes, I've just been looking out old tapes and I found a uh, Shirley Bassey concert from 1985.
0: What are you supposed to do with this stuff? Even if you have to do it sort of as an intermediate stage, the stuff has got to be rescued off of VHS tapes before the mold gets to it. I've got a box of Betamax tapes somewhere that I need to go looking out and I've got to do something with them. Yeah, there's going to be a fair bit of um, digitising, but that, that sort of side of things has hit a bit of a brick wall. Uh, yeah, it, it
1: usually does in the end. It Depends how many types you've got really and
0: what the quality are. Ah, well it wasn't so much the number of tapes that was causing me the problem at this end is that I, I had a, a one terabyte hard drive which I thought had a problem with its caddy, with its enclosure. So I ordered a new enclosure online, opened up the hard drive, carefully removed it, put it into the new enclosure, plugged in the new enclosure, thinking to myself, got one terabyte of space here, I can do lots of digitizing, and within thirty seconds the thing was going up in smoke. Oh. and I had to unplug it rapidly before I either short-socketed the whole flat or ended up with a, a flaming hard drive in my hand. So these are the hazards of the, the archivists, but, you know, we're dedicated to the cause, so we, we do this kind of stuff. Yeah. So this week we are talking about a sitcom from a very famous sitcom writer, but it's a sitcom that, unless you keep a a close eye on the schedules of gold in the early hours of the morning or whatever, it's probably one that you're not too familiar with. Boggs, if you can tell the listeners what this week's sitcom is. Yes, this week's sitcom
1: is two series of Dear John, which ran from February 1986 till December 1987.
0: And this was starring, unusually, because he's somebody who was more associated with drama, and particularly with things like the Hammer horror films and so on, this was an unusual sitcom role for Ralph Bates. And he is the star, he is the aforementioned John in The Dear John. If you can just tell us a little bit, Boggs, initially, about what the premise is, who John is.
1: John, played by Ralph Bates, is a schoolteacher. He's recently divorced from his wife, Wendy, who's left him for his best friend who's a rugby playing um also a teacher. Basically John's decided to join a club for divorced and lonely people to try and find friendship for himself.
0: Indeed and this is a show where although we have a relatively limited number of episodes available to discuss because there are only 14 episodes over the two series it's a show which has a nice ensemble of characters a lot of the shows that we've been discussing over the last few weeks have been principally led by one or two people with a cast of supporting characters whereas as time goes on as you often get in ensemble pieces, you have episodes which focus on one particular character. John is a constant, of course, he's always there. But otherwise, you've got a a nice crew of people who, for one reason or another, find themselves at the the club, at the community centre, on a Friday night. Even though it's a club for divorced and separated people, not everybody who's there is actually divorced or separated, as we will learn. Tell me your initial thoughts, then, on... The show overall, where you think that it stands in the John Sullivan sitcom list in terms of like the shows he was doing at the time, Just Good Friends, and then shows like Sitting Pretty that he did afterwards?
1: I really do enjoy Dear John. Now, it's got this sort of reputation that it wasn't one of his best series like you would get with Only Fools and Horses or um, Just Good Friends. But I think it's a really strong series which does get better as it goes on. This sort of first episodes are uh, formulaic, but it uh, really allows for characters to um, come out and show their real sort of characteristics.
0: Yes, I mean I agree with yourself. I I, I discovered Deodron about three years ago. It was being repeated on Gold at the time, and I hadn't seen it before. And yeah, I quite quickly found myself hooked on it and it's it's just one of those shows where I was speaking to Ocho the other day about shows which you just feel comfortable in the presence of those people doesn't necessarily always give me laugh out loud moments although there's quite a few of them in the, the two series which did but more it's about the fact that you're enjoying the company of these people as is often the case with sitcoms, they're not always people that you would necessarily actually want to know in real life, but they can be quite often the sitcom characters that you like the most. Um, but it,
1: it really does work as an ensemble piece where you um, have so many different characters, like Only Fools and Horses, an ensemble cast in the same place each time. Okay, there are other characters uh, who don't attend the uh, one-to-one club, which John and the rest of them do, but mainly based around the club itself.
0: Yes. Well, let's start with John because he, as you say, is a school teacher. He is married. He, he has a son. But, yeah, he, he finds himself unexpectedly in the position of having to move out of the home. And he's moving into a little bed-sit. He only gets to see his son on Sundays. And he obviously maintains contact with his now ex-wife mainly in relation to to seeing toby and so on but it is a strained relationship as you'd expect mixed with the fact that his ex has left him for his best friend so yeah he's a rather sort of i suppose it's fair to say a downtrodden character he's not a pessimist he's actually quite level-headed i suppose you'd be fair to call him as he's often described by all us in the show as a sort of a woolly kind of character who doesn't want to cause offence
1: well there is an episode in series 2 where Kirk, who we'll get into later does describe him as a woolly hearted liberal but he wants his life, what there is of it to go along smoothly everything's got its place and everything should work well to his advantage
0: yeah I'm sort of hesitant to necessarily call him a pacifist. I think that sometimes he realises that he's got to stand up for himself and stand up for other people and so on. So he certainly doesn't allow people to necessarily trample over him. Not that those two are mutually inclusive, of course.
1: I would describe him more of a realist in that sense. He understands all these things which go on. Sometimes he makes good decisions, sometimes he makes bad decisions, but he always wants to make the right decision for whoever he's dealing with, whether it's his wife or whether it's another member of a club.
0: Yeah, and he's a very honest person and he's a very fair-minded person and as much as he doesn't like to see people put upon, I think that he is somebody who... Always has all of people's best interests at heart. Not necessarily always to his own advantage as well. But he's somebody who doesn't like injustice. He doesn't like to see people uh, being put upon or bullied. Sometimes he needs to sort of stand up for himself a bit more. But he's a kind of person who you can imagine being very well liked. A lot of people would like him as a friend.
1: Yeah, that's maybe a fault of his in trying to help people. But in helping people that it can also go wrong as well, which leads to his frustration. I know that one of his characteristics, when he's frustrated, he bangs his head against the wall. The frustration does show and does come out. He wants to do the right thing for everyone.
0: So, after a bit of an initial mix-up at the community centre, he eventually finds his way to the one-to-one club, and there we have our collection of characters. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the, the individual people that uh, he'll meet there. First of all, the class itself, the class leader is Louise, played by Rachel Bell. And she is a quite sort of posh, quite well-to-do lady who has a, a particular interest in the underlying reasons for people's marital difficulties, specifically the, the phrase, "whether there any sexual problems, is, uh, is frequently uttered by herself. Yeah.
1: We learn in the series that she's a makeup supervisor in a department store, so maybe her foolishness comes from working in that position. But it's also that she wants to find out about other people's so called sexual problems, that her husband had sadomasochistic tendencies himself.
0: Yes, and so, yeah, uh, that might be the reason that she's got such an interest in, in all people's personal lives. But, yeah, so she, she runs a group. I think it's fair to say she runs the group fairly well. And uh, she does sort of have limited tolerance for a particular member of the group and his tendency for telling tall tales. But we'll get on to Kirk in a second. Alongside John in the group, then, we have Belinda Lang, who's playing Kate. Now, she... Has been married three times, and eventually we discover that Kate is uh, sort of inverted commas frigid. And following this revelation, this is something which again the aforementioned Kirk, who will keep on mentioning, <laughs> we'll come to him shortly because he has quite a big impact on the group itself. But this is something that he refuses to let drop and mentions it every turn. But Kate is um she's one of the most interesting people in the group I find because she is. At once friendly and also she can be quite cold and quite distant.
1: She can be acerbic as well at times. Obviously in her, as we'll get onto Kirk, like you said in a minute, their sort of uh, frosty relationship, she can be acerbic with him. But she can also be, in the beginning, acerbic with John that they don't quite know each other, and she will go on the attack towards people.
0: And the other mainstay of the group is Ralph, played by Peter Denyer. People may not know the name, but they would certainly recognise Peter Denyer as the lovable Dennis in Please Sir. Whereas John is a, a nice guy, but not a doormat... Ralph unfortunately is yeah Ralph
1: Ralph can be a doormat and to others he may seem sort of boring but he's actually happy with what he's got his interest in his motorcycle and also as we'll see later in Terrapins he's just happy with what he's got and just going along in life quite plainly really
0: Yes, the reason that Ralph is in the group is that he was married to a lady who left him as soon as she got a British passport. And even after that fact, he still speaks fondly and highly of her, even though it's quite clear to everybody else in the group that he was really just being used for purposes of citizenship. But Ralph develops a friendship and affinity with... Perhaps a member of the group who makes the most impact on the others, and that is the chap who, for the meantime, we shall refer to as Kirk St. Morris. Kirk is
1: basically almost like John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever, except he can be rude, a chauvinist, he can be tactless at times, and his lies can get bigger and bigger over time. He claims to be
0: a spy. I'll ask you to pause there, Boggs, because we'll get to that as as um, our explanation of series one develops because that's a, a really pivotal point that we're we're gonna approach there. All we know about Carkin, just to put your previous comment into context, Saturday Night Fever was nineteen seventy seven, this is nineteen eighty six. So, uh, we've already gone long past the point of the John Travolta disco look being dated, and it is now pretty much being ridiculed. But, as you say, Kirk, he's he's full of a lot of tall tales. He claims that he cannot discuss his work for security reasons, Official Secrets Act and all that. And he's basically he's got an answer for everything, hasn't he? Yeah. He
1: puts himself forward as, I'm trying to be
0: tactful...
1: With the words which I can use here.
0: Oh, well, there's no need to be tactful when discussing Kirk because Kirk wouldn't be tactful.
1: Okay, let's say that he's a bullshitter, that he puts his uh, toes forward of what he's done and to do with his relationships as well, as we'll find out in a minute.
0: Yeah, he reminds me of Jay from The Inbetweeners, if you add sort of 17, 18 years on in terms of uh, his boasts and what he says his his past experiences have been. And, uh, yeah, he obviously rubs up a lot of people in the group the wrong way, because whereas, you shouldn't forget, it's supposed to be a support group. That's the whole point of it. It's supposed to be uh, for people to to go in there and feel better about themselves when you're sat in there with Kirk. Yeah, he he basically knocks him
1: down, he does, in the way that his uh, personality is he makes people feel small.
0: There's a couple of other people who uh, we should mention at this point. Within the One to One Club itself, uh, we also have a character in Season 1 called Mrs Arnott, played by Jean Chalice, and she is quite often to be found in the group but you you almost wouldn't know she was there. And then suddenly she might just come out with a line. She sort of reminds me in some ways of, uh, for example, you might get, say, Grandad and Only Fools and the Horses might be there during the dialogue between Delboy and Rodney, and then suddenly Grandad gets one line that just kills the place. And quite often Mrs Arnott will be there, she'll be an observer to a conversation that's going on, and then she can come out with one line, which gets a big response.
1: Yeah. She breaks up the tension by saying that big line. I mean almost like a bullet point, if you get what I mean. It may be a strange sort of conversation between Kate and Kirk, and then she comes out with a line and totally diffuses it because, like you said, she gets a big laugh.
0: And outside the one-to-one club, for the most part, uh, although he does try to find his way in there uh, on one occasion, is Ken, who is John's work colleague, a fellow teacher at the school. And unlike John... Ken is still married, he's married to Maggie, who's played by Sue Holdness, who is well known as Marlene in Only Frozen Horses, and he has three kids, and yet he is always wanting to, to use the old-fashioned expression, play the field. And on one occasion I think he even asks John to try and admit him to the one-to-one club uh, under a pseudonym, uh, so he can try and get some of this in, in italics, some of this action that he thinks is going on, if we were, although it's fair to say that he he doesn't quite appreciate what life is like for John. I think he seems to think that John is is out in the, the, the pubs and so on, each and every night with a different lady on his that arm. That
1: might be to do with John telling him those tales himself. He can't really say, I went to a community centre and i talked to these people every Friday night. So John makes his life sound more glamorous than it is. So Ken buys into this sort of not lie, but mistruth in a way.
0: Yeah, uh, I think it's also fair to say though that, that even when he, he finds it for himself that John has been embellishing the truth, I think that he is still envious of John for being a single man and he is still looking for opportunities, he's looking for the possibilities of playing away, so to speak, to use men behaving badly. Speak. Ken finds his life sort of boring, he does, really. Obviously, he's married
1: to Maggie with children and he would want to play the Phil because he wants something different in his life because the ordinary sort of family life's got boring for him.
0: As we mentioned previously we occasionally see Wendy who's John's ex-wife. His uh, son Toby was actually played by Ralph Bates son William Bates and the man who Wendy has taken up with now is Mike who was originally played by Darren trainer, and then later on by Roger Blake, and as you said before, uh, he's supposed to be uh, one of John's oldest friends, and so that compounds his agony. The one person also we shouldn't forget to mention, because she is a, a constant outside of both the club and the school, is John's new home life is in a bed sit and next door to him is Mrs Lemensky.
1: I mean, Mrs Lemensky, uh, you would almost say that whether she is a landlady or not, but obviously she's a next-door neighbour. She can be a bit tactless in a way, but obviously when um, she sees John banging his head in frustration, he, she refers to him as a fruitcake, or you loony person, why are you doing this to yourself? And she doesn't quite understand, but... It will be revealed later why she is a bit like that.
0: Yes, that's one of the the nicest aspects of the fact that it is a a piece, an ensemble piece. When we get to the the Christmas special, right at the end, we will actually discover a lot more about Mrs. Lemensky. whereas initially, earlier episodes, she's more of a traditional sitcom character. She is there for John to relate information to and so on. So tell me a wee bit, Boggs, about how you find the, the interplay in the Once Upon Club itself in terms of the the dialogue between the members. Is that a particular aspect of the show that you enjoy and which particular two characters do you look forward to butting heads, so to speak?
1: Now, obviously, in the first couple of episodes, the people don't know each other, so they can't really... all they get first impressions, so... Uh... So as the sort of first series goes on, they get to know each other more. Really, the two characters who I like the interplay, I like Kirk and Kate because they've got this frosty relationship. It's like a tennis match, so they basically hit the ball to each other. But the best lines are between John and Kate. Because they can sort of get an understanding between each other. And they can talk about things rather than just saying "Oh, funny line to each other. they can actually be realistic as two characters between them. Say where you would get a similar sort of thing maybe with uh, Vince and Penn in Just Good Friends when they're on speaking terms.
0: Yes, and these sections in the one-to-one club, one more recent sitcom that this reminded me of a great deal, is the smoking room, and the fact that you have, again, uh, a mainstay ensemble, you have all people who can come and go and so on. And you notice over time certain characters have a bit more friendship between them, can relate to each other properly rather than just exchanging insults and so on. And so yeah, you've got that mix there. It's interesting to see how each person interacts with each other. Ralph, for example, particularly likes Kirk, although Kirk does actually more often than not, just take the piss out of Ralph. But uh, as as Ralph says, you sometimes make allowances for friends.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's more case that Ralph looks up to Kirk. It's almost like a brotherly relationship. So Ralph looks up to Kirk and he sort of accepts, yeah, I'm going to have a piss taken out of me, but what's that say to a good friendship between them? They sort of get each other on that level, but Ralph's character and Kirk, there are two different sides of a coin. Ralph's, in quotes, boring and Kirk's more flamboyant.
0: Yes, and as time goes on you also see a closer relationship in as much as continuous interplay between them with Louise and Sylvia, who we haven't mentioned yet because she comes in later on in series two and so on. And over time, you do see individual little pairings within the group. And of course, they all come together on a Friday night. Any particular episodes stand out for yourself within Series 1?
1: Yes, the one episode which stands out in Series 1 is Episode 3, which is called Death. The group try and help Ralph when his terrapins die. So he's feeling down, and they try and cheer him up with deeds and presents. But Ralph believes that his bad luck is all because of previous events it sort of follows on from each other it does say so his Terrapins dying from an experience where his caravan gets pushed into a ditch the group try and cheer him up because they think that he might try and do something drastic in that case but he soon sort of learns that lot's not as bad as he thinks and really as the episode goes on we learn more about the events which have happened to make him down and that the group itself has had an effect on those events
0: yes it's nice to see the people themselves outside of the normal surroundings so I think I meant saying that we were actually for a large part of the episode were inside Ralph's front room and We see them outside, not not necessarily outside of the comfort zone, but we just see the characters in a slightly different environment, which can sometimes be the uh, Kelly's heel when it comes to many, a sitcom big-screen movie transition, but thankfully this isn't one of those times. So yeah, it's nice to see change of scenery, and again, as in the case of ensemble sitcoms, you've got an episode which focuses on a particular person who is not normally the focus of attention. But
1: I would say in that episode as well... But one word that you'd use for the episode would be schadenfreude.
0: And another episode which stands out from this series, where you have for example, episode 1, obviously scene setting, episode 2 is introducing the club, there you had episode 3, which we just talked about episode 5 is principally about John's relationship with his son, Toby the last episode we'll come to in a second because that one is a real eye opener, but episode for the party now again we get to see the characters outside of their normal environment
1: the party is like you said it takes them out of their comfort zone they're in a social surrounding they're all having to mix with other members of the other night of the one to one club so of course you get people like sylvia you see her for the first time And in this episode, it's a case that you learn more about John and Kate. Not so much about the others, because they're off doing their own thing. Say, Kirk is dancing with women and and generally sort of offending them. And really, it is an episode to take them out of a comfort zone and see how they get on with other characters.
0: Yes, the penultimate episode is one which focuses on Ken, who we've described previously, married with three kids, who has just had enough of listening to John's tales of uh, his exciting new singleton life and manages to work his way into the one-to-one club despite not being divorced and still being very much married. And the last episode of season one that I'm going I'm to begin an analogy here which I'm probably going to regret but what the hell I'm going to set sail on this course and I'm not going to turn back. On the day that we're recording this episode Twitter last night was ablaze and I'm not going to give away any spoilers don't worry I'm not going to say anything about it but Twitter was ablaze with people reacting to last night's episode of Game of Thrones. Now, like I say I've set sail on this course I'm going to stick to it now. This episode of Dear John the first time that I saw this I was really taken aback because in terms of what took place I just really wasn't wasn't expecting it we were speaking before in a previous episode about how if you're going to have a fundamental alteration to either your setup or a change in a particular character or if a character is going to leave or something like that then the time to do it is either the first episode of a series or the last episode, because if you do it right in the middle of a series, very, very occasionally, like for example if a, a cast member leaves, as is actually the case in Dear John when Belinda Lang disappears for a couple of episodes, or when, for example, Francis de la Tour left Rising Damp* for one series halfway through, very occasionally that kind of thing can work mid-series. Ordinarily, if you change something fundamentally the expectation of the audience is actually going to be that everything's going to be back to normal next week and probably things aren't going to suddenly change in the middle of a series. Now, last episode of this series and suddenly we've got a different situation on our hands. Initially it starts off with Kirk wanting John to intervene and set up a date between himself and Kate. Now, uh, events overtake somewhat and John and Kate end up getting a wee bit tipsy and they spend the night together at John's bedside. John then goes round to Kirk's address to explain what's happened the night before and is somewhat surprised by what he finds what he finds is not quite an elderly lady but a lady I think probably in her 60s who has never heard of the name Kirk St Morris and eventually her son named Eric Morris traditional spelling so to speak M-O-R-R-R comes to the door and of course it's Kirk Um, but Eric is very plainly dressed uh, wearing uh, thick rimmed glasses and there is nothing remotely John Travolta like about him.
1: It comes as a surprise really when John goes to Morris's flat and meets Eric for the first time, it's almost like, well, I've been given this address, so where is Kirk? Who are you? He recognises the face, but he does not recognise the personality.
0: Yeah, and the reason that this sort of throws you when you see it is because although, as you said, although we have come to expect that Kirk is a bullshitter and that he's going to tell these ridiculous anecdotes and going to make out that he is effectively 007, we don't buy into that, we don't believe in any of what he's saying. We know that his ordinary life is going to be a good deal more mundane but we don't necessarily expect. This We don't expect it to be this mundane.
1: Well, it does seem that, really in Kirk's life, that he's more downtrodden and you could almost say more boring than Ralph. It's like I was saying earlier, the two sides of a coin with Ralph and Kirk couldn't be more different. But when it comes down to it, Ralph and Eric are more similar than anyone else. Uh, They could be along the same sort of wavelength.
0: Eric has really nothing about him at all. Eric relates his tale to John about how his siblings have flown the nest. He, despite being the oldest of the siblings, has stayed there, stayed with his mother, and he, he really doesn't have any personality of his own, so... He tells his tale about how he has invented this persona of Kirk and thought that the one-to-one club was going to be a good place to find interesting, exciting people. And I mentioned comparison with Jay and the in earlier on. Again, whereas Jay is, is always bullshitting about things because he is lacking in self-confidence and lacking in real-life experiences to an extent, Eric Morris is exactly the same. He's telling these tall tales because he wants to be noticed, because he wants to stand out. And, of course, there was absolutely nothing about him ordinarily that that would stand out. But
1: Eric is more socially awkward. I mean, he's been looking after his mother, or, as we were saying, that he's downtrodden, so he hasn't really experienced life. So he's been in his own bubble, really. You could almost say from being a child he's childlike in a way even though he's a fully grown adult but he hasn't gone beyond being a
0: child yeah well this is true i mean whereas you could draw for example you could draw the comparison with say somebody like the character portrayed by ronnie corbin sorry eric modest he really is a a man child i mean he's got posters of um, the A-Team and Dempsey and Makepiece on his walls. He has toy guns in his room. Certainly it's fair to say that John is quite taken aback
1: it's by a, it's a case. And... It's a case with Eric that he sort of can't escape his childhood, if you get what I mean. It's like a comfort blanket to him. He wants to be a child all the time. He doesn't want to face the responsibility of adult responsibility, if you get what I mean, he can't face it, and that may be quite his problem as well, in maybe sustaining a uh,
0: relationship. Yeah, and I was mentioning before, but the time to hint at fundamental changes of a character normally would be something like the last episode of a series and it may end on a cliffhanger and you might find that the press the reset button when they get uh, to the start of the second series or whatever it may be but there's always that possibility. Now in this case John implores Eric to basically come to the club next time as himself and be honest about it even though he hasn't really got any place at the club because he's not divorced or separated he's never been married but Eric initially agrees and says that he will be himself. And the one thing, of course, that um, Eric slash Kirk has not been embellishing is the fact that he is besotted with Kate. And as John says, you know, Kate will, she's not necessarily going to fall for you immediately, but she's going to have a damn sight more tolerance for you if you'll be yourself, rather than being this character who cannot resist making gags at her expense and constantly looking for ways to get the rise from her, get the reaction from her. So Eric does agree to go along to the club, but he's obviously had a change of heart in the intervening hours because by the time he turns up he's back into his Travolta gear. It's fair to say he has quite a novel explanation for what's taken place earlier on.
1: It's almost like Eric can't face up to his own truth. The the lies and the truth have overlapped so much that he's got confused himself. He doesn't know who he is anymore. He lives in his own sort of fantasy world, and in that way he can't work out, Am I Eric? Am I Kirk? And they sort of merged into one, and he doesn't quite know.
0: You'd think that the only way that he's going to be able to get round this difficulty is to say to John, Look, I'm just more comfortable being in this character, keep it to yourself. In actual fact, what he says is, God damn it, you nearly blew the the, the whole gaff there by just turning up at the address. Don't you realise that I was under surveillance there? That was a covert operation. <laughs> His mother that he'd met earlier on was actually the, the, the boss of the, uh, the Secret Service, so to speak. And I think this gives an added edge to the relationship between John and Kirk in series two because in series one whereas John suspects that Kirk is bullshitting in series two he knows he is and you can see in his reaction when Kirk is telling another of his stories about his adventures be it in Afghanistan or wherever it may have been John knows this is crap and he's sitting there just tolerating it I guess for the Quiet Life, he doesn't want to actually confront them in front of everybody and tell them what he's seen. He's related that in the pub at the end of Series 1, but he doesn't want to come back to that later on. But I was sort of wondering for a little while in Series 2, I was wondering, was this going to be something which is sort of forgotten about? Is this going to be them pressing the the reset button? But as time goes on, in particular at the end of Series 2, we realise that isn't the case. So, your overall impressions of Season 1, I was going to say, you know, would it have intrigued you to, to go on and watch Series 2? Obviously, it has done. But how did you find that Series 1, comparison to Series 2, for example, how would you find it that? Uh, two
1: series 1, um, you'd almost think that you're still learning about the characters in Series 1. Yes, there's better interplay as the episodes go on between the protagonists. And in the end, yes, it, it builds to something quite good. But it doesn't quite have that something extra to help it that maybe Series 2 does. It may be partly that the series may have had a lower budget and done in a different way to Series 2. Series 2 does seem better... It seems more well thought out in both the performances and also in the scripts.
0: Yep. Series 2, we start to see additional characters come to the club because, as you say, we've already learned a good deal about the characters in Season 1. So, Series 2, we start to see... Some additional people become regulars and some become semi-regulars. We mentioned Sylvia that we'd met previously in the party. She then becomes a regular character in this series. Also in this series, we have a chap who comes in and is actually the the central figure for a couple of episodes. And that is Kevin Lloyd, who probably people will remember best for being Tosh Lyons in The Bill. But in this series here, he plays uh, sort of past his prime pop star of the 1960s called Ricky Fortune. One hit wonder in Iceland, as it happens. And when he joins the group, initially, they, of course, all the group members want to know about his background and so on. Kirk, of course, will be unimpressed because I don't think that he particularly appreciates the fact that suddenly there's somebody else there in the group who, in his own way, is also I suppose you could say ostentatious but without being too flash. So yeah, he'll he'll you know, he wouldn't necessarily make friends with Kirk, but as far as the others in the group are concerned, they're interested to hear his story and just intrigued why is well, yeah.
1: it and of course there is um the undercurrent that he had been a pop star and of course they all try and find out what have you been on, where have you played and as the episodes go on, we actually learn more and more about his Career as well as his uh,
0: personality, and this leads us to an episode in season two where Ricky actually gets a chance to we discover a little bit yeah. of his fame and to take centre yeah. stage again. Yeah,
1: I would say that this episode that you're talking about is my favourite episode of series two, where uh, Mrs. A-Lot's daughter does charity work for Save the Children and she's going out to i think it's africa so mrs a is basically leaving so they want to put on a 60s night to raise money for safer children and also see mrs a off before she goes and looks after her daughter's children in uh, sheffield so they think well 60s night or They have the idea that they should get a uh, 60s band in. Now, of course, John has the idea of helping Ricky's confidence by having him play at the 60s night. But, unfortunately, Louise has the idea because her cousin knows Freddie and the Dreamers. So, of course, John thinks, yeah, well... I I don't think that's right and possible that you do actually or oh, her cousin does know Freddy and the Dreamers. So they set it up, they have the evening and basically Rick gets dressed up, ready to go on. It's a good episode already, but then you actually get the cameo by Freddie Garrity and the Dreamers. And John he doesn't know quite what's happened. Rick sort of thinks, oh, well, he's been sort of shot out really by this. And John says to Louise, why did you do it? Eventually, Louise explains, well, it's a charity. They had an hour, so they'll do it. And they did do it. And obviously, Rick can do the second spot on this sort of mini show. But by the end, you know... Rick and John have had words, and now Rick thinks it's time to leave, so he does leave. And it's a case where John sort of messed it up for Rick, even though he would have had a chance to play again and get some
0: confidence back into himself. It's been a couple of years since I actually saw that particular episode, so let me just check one detail with yourself because if I'm remembering this correctly, when Freddie and the Dreamers are on stage, they spot Ricky in the wings and I think Freddie Garrity, does he say something to Ricky to the effect of, well, he recognised him first of all, and then he says, when did you get out? I
1: can't remember that myself in the episode that I saw but it might have been
0: edited actually. I remember thinking at the time, does that mean that he had done time or something like that? Or yeah, I, I, actually, I, I, I think, of I think the they
1: team? do refer um, in the episode that Ricky uh, got caught for drugs with his bandmates, and they all did time for uh, drug trafficking.
0: Later on in Series 2, we have John being consumed with a new relationship with a lady called Liz, and he is... Promised well, not exactly. Wouldn't say promised a wild weekend, but he is promised an interesting weekend away in Turkey. But before he can actually get to Turkey, he is again problems with Ken, who is, as the episode title implies, he is seeking sanctuary in John's Betsit. and this is a, again a nice little sort of diversion, having a, an irregular character come in, be the focus of attention for a little while, and as is so often the case of course uh, we can trace this all the way back previous episodes, previous shows that we've discussed and so on it's often the case of best laid plans being somewhat spoiled by a third person, by someone else coming in, so it's not really any fault of John's in this case, it's more that John doesn't want to upset Ken, he doesn't want to hurt his feelings again, he's just trying to be too nice and trying to be everything yeah, to everybody yeah.
1: Really, you could say it's a relationship Between Ken and Maggie Slowly sort of breaking down If you get what I mean And obviously, John's being used by Ken To soften the blow To try and see whether they can have reconciliation, really Whatever John says, or any lines like that It doesn't really work
0: Yeah, I think it's fair to say that Whatever it is, that's keeping Ken and Maggie together, and it, it may well be the children. I get the impression, don't think she really ever addresses it, but I get the impression that Maggie probably has a relatively good idea, or that Ken has a wandering eye. Although she gives him hell on the telephone later on, when even the suggestion of him going elsewhere uh, of an evening is put to her. But she tolerates Ken. I don't think it'll be too long before... Ken could actually be a legitimate. But it's,
1: a, it's to a a same, the same, similar sort of thing. You could almost say for uh, Ken and Maggie, it's a sort of seven year itch. They've been in a relationship for so long, they've got children, and everything's become boring and plain. It isn't exciting anymore. And it sort of gets to that point where Ken has to use his roaming eye to try and uh, find other women, and for Maggie, you know, she just she just wants to be out of it. But of course, they have got the children holding them back. But they can't really get a divorce.
0: Ken eventually has a vasectomy at Maggie's request, and this does actually lead to to one piece of dialogue where we don't actually realise it's Ken on the phone initially. But all we can hear at John's end is John asking, "Plums, what do you mean?" So we can assume from this that the, the op has not been without its complications. As we get towards the end of season two, unfortunately, John's budding relationship with Liz doesn't take off. She meets somebody else in the hotel in Torquay, chooses the other chap. But we actually find John quite high spirits when we get to the end of season two, because everything's looking rather rosy for himself. Now, before we get onto the situation with John in the last regular episode, We've got a couple of other sort of movements in regards to all the characters, principally with Kate, who, sort of halfway through the series, takes up with a new partner and yeah, emigrates yeah, to Greece. Yeah,
1: she, uh, she basically emigrates to Greece and finds a new partner in Christos. Also in season two, Rick leaves after the second episode. At the end of the second episode, you don't ever see him again not even mentioned and basically sylvia becomes more filling in for kate in that role but they needed a second female character to come in and fill in for her
0: probably the person that has the most impact on perhaps strangely because as we've discussed john and kate have probably the strongest friendship of the group but the person that Kate's departure has the the most impact on is Kirk because of course he's still pining for Kate and is rather nervous about the effect that Greece will have on her he's worried about the strong aphrodisiac qualities of the alcohol available in Greece and so on and that will reach a semi-resolution in the the Christmas episode He he
1: finds himself in that episode, uh, he doesn't really know what he wants to do with himself, Kirk, that he basically finds himself at a loose end, so he has to rely on John for support in that way, that he needs John to help him through this period, because obviously they've had that sort of moment at the end of series one, Kirk... Can't really talk to Ralph because they're one and the same so he needs John who's been through a sort of marriage and all like that and a meaningful relationship to help him out
0: and in the case of John from the last episode always a sort of a, a warning signal in sitcoms is when you have a character, particularly one who is to an extent downtrodden appearing to be very happy <laughs> at the beginning of an episode and being quite content with life and even more so actually having good prospects on the horizon. And in this particular instance, principally he's happy because his name's at the top of the shortlist to become headmaster of the school. And he's had the nod from the existing headmaster played by Frank Windsor that the process is a mere yeah. formality. But
1: it, it... It does lead to uh, problems, it does, uh, in that case. He does find a potential new partner, which, of course, does have effects on his job prospects.
0: Yeah, without giving too much away, as far as that final series episode is concerned, yeah, John discovers that not all is as it seems, and it's quite sad in a way because you know from the outset because John is so happy and, and damn near elated with life, you know this isn't going to continue and it, it's a, in a way it's, it's a sort of a, an unhappy aspect with quite a lot of sitcoms particularly ones of the traditional 30 minute variety is that you've got characters that you like and so obviously you'd like to see them do well and be happy but of course that isn't funny and so you need conflict and you need problems and you need things to go wrong in order for there to be the humour in the plot. So, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky balancing act and it's fair to say that, of course, things do not work out for John as a, a peer, that they're going to, in the episode. But he's also, he's not absolutely heartbroken, he's not distraught because just couldn't do that. You couldn't have that as a conclusion to a sitcom episode that wasn't a cliffhanger that was going to continue into the following week. Certainly not the, the last episode of a series. You wouldn't really want to end it on a, a massive downer. So, it's as far as a series finale is concerned, it I thought it was a little bit flat. I was sort of hoping for a bit more resolution in terms of the characters in general, but... To an extent, I guess we get that with the yeah. It, it,
1: like you were saying, that that episode does feel flat. You know, maybe that you could have really swapped episodes round. Maybe you could have swapped the fifth and sixth round. That that might made more logical order than having the sixth one where it is with the sort of conclusion that it
0: does have so we finally have the Christmas episode which sadly was actually the last episode of the series I felt actually that I felt there was another series in this this show I felt that there was more to say but the 15 minute Christmas episode is our conclusion and it's an interesting one for a number of reasons one is that as we mentioned before It's only really in this episode that we actually get to know anything of Mrs Lemensky. She's always there. She's there at the beginning of the day, at the end of the night, but we don't really know a great deal about her, apart from the fact that she thinks John is slightly around the twist. But in this episode here, uh, we have her relating her own story, and the fact that we've got 50 minutes, as would then be the case in the later Only Fools and the Horses episodes, we've got room to breathe. We've got room to have slow paced dialogue we've got room to have dialogue that just isn't necessarily looking for big laughs we've just got time to flesh out the it's like the same
1: thing like you're saying with the uh, longer only fools and horses episodes it does have laughs in it but it does also have drama which would become a trait of john sullivan's over the years anyway and you do sort of find that with his uh christmas specials anyway for example, the last ever episode of Just Good Friends. You could almost say it's like a drama. This is not dramatic, but it does have pathos moments with Mrs. Lomensky, as we learn more about why she is like she is and also her past life
0: and that leaves us a nice touching conclusion to the episode we don't need to go into too much detail about it We'll let people enjoy it for themselves but it's, it's a nice way to, to round off the series a slightly unexpected way as well in terms of the pre-existing plot the actual name of this episode is Kate's Return actual fact Kate's Return doesn't really play a central role in this episode she does return from Greece for Christmas but her appearance is I suppose you could say more incidental she's more of a sort of a bystander for the main plot which involves Ralph and again Ralph is just somebody you just cannot help but like and especially in this episode where it's almost a throwaway line it's not necessarily something that gets your attention it's not a line that gets laughs it's not intended to get laughs but it's it tells you so much about Ralph as a character he describes how there's been a Barney outside of his house one evening, and a group of Hell's Angels have been involved in the fight. And to John's astonishment, he relates this tale of how he went down to confront them. And he's seemingly got off relatively lightly because he's only got a few abrasions, having been sort of picked up and thrown into a nearby bush. But there's one particular line when he says, in response to Johnson, "You you actually went down yourself and confronted them," and he said, "Well, yeah, I mean there was you know women and children around," and it's just it's just such a a, a sweet aspect of his nature that although he was completely ill-equipped to deal with the situation, there was never any prospect that he was going to be able to go down there and reason with the, the hooligans. He wasn't armed, he, he, it wasn't as if he had any kind of weaponry on him. <laughs> he just had his own bare fists. But still, because he was concerned about the well-being of others, that he went down there and put himself in, in that very dangerous situation. And as far as the, the plot development is concerned, we discovered that later on he's made a call to the police to get the rumpus sorted out. And um, They've discovered that it was his, himself that called, and then they confront him in the pub. And this is, of course, where Eric uh, sort of becomes Kirk once again, because we've seen Eric earlier on in the episode. Uh, Whereas I was sort of thinking earlier on that Kirk becoming Eric, that might be something that was sort of forgotten about and you weren't really encouraged to dwell on that aspect too much. In the Christmas episode, we see a bit more of Eric's very mundane homelight. Yeah, I
1: think it's really a case where Eric does not want to be Kirk anymore He wants to be known as himself As he s- says that he gives up Kirk Kirk is no more So he wants to be just Derek Morris And he wants his own life He would want to be his own person But as you say um, with the Hell's Angels There is dramatic conclusion there is
0: Yes, we have the unusual situation of Eric being incognito in the pub and so able to hear the conversation of the others in relation sometimes to himself and sometimes in relation to Kate and how she's been enjoying Greece and he pretty much goes undetected. It's only of course when things kick off with the Hells Angels that initially he does a runner but then realises that his friends are in there and he's the only person in a position to do anything for them, and spots the gents, and then realises that he has his John Travolta outfit with him, and then does uh, a Clark Kent, and then, of course, Kirk emerges to a huge round of applause. It's
1: a Superman moment, it is. Becoming uh, Cooks and Moritz after um, being Eric Morris, you know, to help everyone, that it's all going wrong, so the only man who can deal with the Hell's Angels is of course Kirk, who knows Kung Fu and
0: everything like that. So Kate's return is rather incidental and we are left to just really dwell on what happened next. The fact that Kirk, as he now is, and we presume is going to remain has a chance to, to catch up with Kate um, and We finally have a nice conclusion to the story in relation to John. But again, it didn't feel to me like a a full stop. It didn't feel to me like a final episode.
1: It could have been another series, but unfortunately because of the untimely death of Ralph Bates, there unfortunately couldn't be any more. And you couldn't really carry on with dear John without John himself.
0: Ralph Bates passed away in 1991, and the show itself, Dear John, actually rebooted, so to speak, and began again in the USA uh, the year after the UK version concluded. 1988, Dear John USA began with Judd Hirsch in the role of John. Judd Hirsch, of course, was best known for his role in Taxi. And that series actually went on for a good deal longer than the UK edition, actually went on until 1992. And one little interesting fact that was passed to me by Ocho just before we started this recording was that the character of Ricky Fortune, which was played by Kevin Lloyd in the UK version, in the USA version, that was actually played by the British actor Trevor Eve. So yeah, I need to track down a recording of that because I wouldn't necessarily have guessed that the person who would later on portray Huey Green would yeah. be in that role. But can <laughs> but I add Yeah, yeah um, another
1: fact. Basically, the American version, because of a deal that it was bought by NBC, the company who made it, well, it was made by uh, Ed Weinberger and Paramount, but obviously uh, done by NBC as well, it was actually done word for word from a British version. It was...
0: Yes, and this is I guess you would say an unusual situation. You do of course have many many examples of shows going from the UK to the US and vice versa. and there are some I know that we'll be discussing the upper hand in the future sitcom club. there are some, for example, which are very, very similar to their originals, but you don't tend to get them literally carbon copies. We've actually got a potential. At least one potential podcast in the entire subject of transatlantic conversions and shows that have gone back and forth. Uh, and that's not even including uh, UK uh, slash Canadian productions such as Spats. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. You knew no, I was going to get knew, that crowbar I knew into you there were somewhere.
1: Get it in there you
0: were. So, overall, what was your impression then, Dear John, as a series as a whole?
1: Well, my impression of it is it's one of the best sitcoms out there. Now, it may take a little while to get into, but once you get into writing of John Sullivan, it may not be seen by some people, as good as Only Fools and Horses, just good friends, like I said earlier, but the actual writing is as good, the actual line. So one line is the sum of the best which Sullivan's ever done. It doesn't get as much credit as it really should do. For the performance of Ralph Bates, like we mentioned that he was a serious actor, Hammer Horror, etc., etc., to come into a sitcom, we know that in uh, some comedies, straight actors do make the best sitcom actors, that Ralph Bates is one of the best performances I've seen in, well, ever, ever.
0: I really think that Ralph Bates as John is a real person. He does not come across, as is so often the case, as an actor playing a role. There, there is no, as we've talked about quite a lot in recent episodes about uh, a lot of contemporary sitcoms, there is no turning up, nobody's playing to the back of the stalls. He, he's he's a real person. You, You believe that he is who he is, uh, and and for example, sometimes Ralph, for example, who is a lovable character. He strikes me, and also you could say as well, but Mrs. Leminsky, to an extent, they appear sometimes as traditional sitcom characters. They're they're sort of quite broad, that they're quite not quite cartoonish, but they're not entirely believable people. They're the people who, whose personalities are turned up a notch. Whereas with John, he's an absolutely believable person. And he's just somebody who I think that people naturally would warm to. And sometimes you just want to give him a good shake and say, look, um, you're not necessarily doing yourself any favours. But he's always got all people's interests at heart, and, and that really comes across very strongly.
1: Yeah, he doesn't help himself when he's trying to please everyone, and his mildness, mildness and meekness.
0: Well, we can only hope that uh, John himself didn't have need to be a member of the one-to-one club forevermore. But, as we said, there was um, no more series after the Christmas special. Yeah, that's where the story concludes, and maybe one day we'll uh, have a look at Dear John USA in detail and see where their story went over the course of four years. So thank you very much indeed for your time today, Boggs. It's been good chatting as ever. Let me just remind listeners that you can find us at sitcomclub.com and there you can find details about forthcoming episodes. You can also find us on Twitter at TheSitcomClub and we're also on Facebook under the same name. Um, if you've got any particular requests for any shows that you'd like us to cover in the future or if you got any feedback for us at all or if you just want to email us and ask us when we're actually going to discuss bats, then you can email us at feedback at sitcomclub.com or just tweet us and we'll get back to you so from Boggenstrovia.
1: that's all from me for now folks
0: and it's good night for him and it's good night from me